6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 18 through 25. Lack of obedience of children is a sign of moral decay in a nation. That's in Isaiah chapter 3. That is a, a measure you can use to see the health of a nation, is the obedience of the children. Interesting. Children who do not obey their parents when young will not obey their parents when older. No surprise. Straightforward. And for the most part, children do not create problems. They reveal them. You, did, you know insanity is hereditary? We get it from our children, right? Okay. A commitment to honesty and devotion. You know, one of the biggest shocks I've had going from 30 years in the corporate boardrooms. I was, uh, I, I've served on 12 public boards. I was chairman and CEO of four, uh, six different publicly traded companies. Going from that to professional Christianity, publishing and writing and so forth, the last 20 years. First 30 years was an executive. The last 20 has been uh, as a writer and speaker is the evaporation of integrity, the sanctity of a commitment. And uh, we've lost the concept of the sanctity of commitment in our marriages and in our businesses. And it's astonishing to see the deterioration of this same concept in the corporate boardrooms also. It was very different back when I was active in that. They didn't have the Enrons and what have you in those days. They may have had problems, but not to the extent they have today. It's astonishing. We have a society that's completely severed any apparent connection between character and destiny. It used to be that if you worked hard and kept your nose clean, you could, it would be the path to success. Not today. It's what you can get away with. Even in the Christian body, we have so focused on grace that we've abandoned any practical call to obedience and holiness. It's astonishing. it's astonishing to observe the lack of ethics. We're not talking about morality here, just plain straightforward ethics, keeping your promises. Keeping your promises in business and otherwise. See, our conduct is to be our primary form of witness of what God has done in our lives. He didn't say witness, he said be a witness. And uh, we seem to. Anyway, continue. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. There's a rule for fathers. We're to imitate him who is our father God. The term here in Colossians could be translated parents, as it is in Hebrews 11:23, the same word. And Paul made it very clear that parents must make it easy as possible for children to obey. Well, children here can drop that down to throw it up to them later. Okay, that's fine. Servants. Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. This is a heavier verse than you may realize on the face of it. But first of all, that's pretty straightforward. It sounds like we're continuing the same thought. Not exactly. There's a distinct difference between a Christian employee and a nominal employee. 
Before the law, there's two kinds of things, what they call an arm's length relationship or a fiduciary relationship. If you are an employee of a, of a firm, you owe that firm 60 minutes for every hour paid, no problem. But when five o'clock comes or whatever, or you go home, your obligations end until the following morning, is the concept. And that's straightforward. In, unless you are a manager or a director and that you have a different relationship I'll come to. The disturbing thing here is what the scripture is saying, servants or employees, if you will, obey in all things your masters or your employers according to the flesh, not with eye service, not just when they're watching as men pleasers, but in the singleness of heart. Now, when you analyze that phrase, what this is a call to is a fiduciary relationship. If you are just even a nominal employee, you are God's witness there. And you turn out under the Lord, not, maybe not under the law of your employments here, but in, in, in the spirit of the, the text, is to be, have a fiduciary relationship. The word fiduciary is a term that's not commonly used in, in the general public, but you need to understand it. And, uh, but incidentally, just as another thing, the peasants in the feudal societies owed their landowners about 25% of their produce, but you and I owe us at least 60% more. It's a very different structure. We think of slavery as something in the past. Not really, because back then it was $1.04. And, and now it's 60 cents every dollar or more, depending on your situation here. So you have to work until August before you have anything for yourself. You know, so. But anyway, this applies to bondmen. How much more those that have a measure of freedom in employment? This is the idioms here are of the economy of that day, which was the master-slave idea. But it's really not, it's ap totally applicable, if you will, to our particular economic structure. The singleness of heart thing I want to focus on, though, because that's honest dedication. We owe, as Christians, fiduciary responsibilities to our employers, as if it was the Lord himself. And that has profound implications. We'll get into here. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Now, this first verse of chapter 4 concludes chapter 3, if you will, but I bring it in here because chapter 4, we, from verse 2 on, has it is in a different segment. But anyway, I get into the duties here, and I want to talk a little bit about fiduciary responsibilities. Basic vocabulary. What does the word faithful mean? 1 Corinthians 4.2 Moreover, it is required in stewards, that's us, that a man be found faithful. Faithfulness is a requirement, taken for granted. Firmly adhering to duty is what it means, of true fidelity, loyal, true to allegiance, constant in the performance of duties or services, true to one's word, honest, loyal. That's what the word faithful means. We're called to be faithful. We're called to be loyal. It's astonishing to really examine our society and realize how many ways we uh, contrive to be disloyal. And I could get into a whole thing on gossip here. The most painful fin most, what is the most painful sin? It's not murder. I suggest to you it's gossip. And do a study in the scripture about gossip. It's a, a, a form of betrayal. But the word fiduciary, I want to talk about this a little bit. It's, the re, it's defined as the relation existing when one person justifiably reposes confidence, faith, and reliance in another whose aid, advice, or protection is sought in some manner. That's out of a law dictionary, okay? The relation existing when good conscience requires one to act at all times for the sole benefit and interest of another. 
with loyalty to those interests. That's what the word fiduciary means. That's the doctor and a patient, or a solicitor and his client, and so forth. A fiduciary relationship. The relation, by law, existing between certain classes of persons, such as confidential advisors and one advised, ex executors or administrators and legatees or, or heirs, corporate directors or officers. If you're a manager or a corporate director of a corporation, you're a fiduciary of the collective owners, not just the ones that put you in place. If 20% of the shareholders voted for you to be a director, you owe allegiance to the whole 100% of the shareholders, not just the ones that put you there. It's a very important concept in the law. I want to quote some legal statements here that I think are fundamental, at least in our country. Many forms of conduct are permissible in a workaday world for those acting at arm's length. They're forbidden to those bound by fiduciary ties. A trustee is held to something stricter than the morals of the marketplace. Not honestly alone, but the punctilio of an honor that is most sensitive is then the standard of behavior. This is, uh, these are uh, court judgments that have handed down as precedents. As to this, there was developed a tradition that is unbending and inveterate. Uncompromising rigidity has been the attitude of the courts of equity when petitioned to undermine the rule of undivided loyalty by the disintegrating erosion of a particular exceptions. Only thus has the level of conduct for fiduciaries been kept at a, higher, a level higher than that trodden by the crowd. A director of a corporation is in the position of a fiduciary. He will not be permitted improperly to profit at the expense of his corporation. Undivided loyalty will ever be insisted upon. Personal gain will be denied to a director when it becomes, because he has taken the position adverse to or in conflict with the best interests of the corporation. The fiduciary relationship imposes a duty to act in accordance with the highest standards, which a man of the finest sense of honor might impose upon himself. I served on 12 boards over a period of 30 years, and only in one case in that era was a, 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 an officer or director removed for breach of fiduciary duty. When I got into the Christian world and served on a number of boards, in just a 10-year period, we had to do it three times. I was, it took me a long time to get used to the reality that it was a much less ethical, uh, orderly environment. Part of that's due to just lack of training. Uh, misguided good intentions are not an excuse. While there's a lofty moral ideal implicit in this rule, it actually accomplishes a practical bene beneficent purpose, according to Judge Shintag. It recognizes the frailty of human nature. It realizes that where a man's immediate fortunes are concerned, he may sometimes be subject to a blindness, often intuitive and compulsive. This rule is designed, on the one hand, to prevent clouded conception of fidelity and a moral indifference that blurs the vision, and on the other hand, to stimulate the most luminous and critical sense and the finest exercise of judgment, uncontaminated by the dross of prejudice, of divided allegiance, or of self-interest. That lays it out, I hope, I think. Okay. When you ask some of the questions that come up in these kinds of things, it, speaking of the early church especially, why didn't the church of that day openly oppose slavery and seek to destroy it? You know, you could argue the early church was all focused on getting saved, but did they do anything about the social conditions of the time? 
For one thing, the church was a minority group and had no political power in the, in the, under that economy, of course, to change an institution that was built into the social order. Paul was careful to instruct Christian slaves to secure their freedom if they could, but he did not advocate rebellion or the overthrow of the existing order. That's a, an important thing to understand. There is a concept throughout the, the law, the, the Torah, and it's also echoed in the Proverbs, remove not the ancient landmark. When you and I read the Old Testament, we think, well, that has to do with property rights or boundaries. The rabbis will tell you, no, it's idiomatic much broader than that. They have a great distrust of altering the traditional way of doing things. And some of that is, is, is uh, very fundamental. Proverbs 24, 21. I wish we had posted this during our elections in 2008. Because Proverbs 24, 21 says, Meddle not with them that are given to change. Because <laughs> change is may, may be exactly what you get, not the kind you think you're going to get. Something should be noted. The purpose of the early church was to spread the gospel and win souls, not to get involved in social action. That doesn't prohibit getting involved in social action, but it's an argument to remember what your priorities are. And winning souls is what the church is called for. Had the first Christians be branded as an anti-government sect, they would have been greatly hindered in their soul winning and their church expansion. And we may be moving into an era like that uh, in our country forthcoming. And while it's good for, and right for Christians to get involved in the promotion of honesty and morality in government and society, this concern must never replace the mandate to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That seems straightforward enough. It's important to get our priorities in order. Let's continue here, in wrapping up Colossians chapter 3 and some other issues. This is the verse that wraps it all up. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. So when you talk about employment, who's your real supervisor? Your real supervisor never sleeps or slumbers. That's who you're really working for. As to the Lord. Your heavenly supervisor loves you so much he can't take his eyes off you. I love that phrase. <laughs> Knowing that of the Lord he shall receive the reward of inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. And this is the spot within which speaks of the reward of inheritance. And uh, this deserves, uh, it's my uh, uh, belief that most churches don't teach anything about rewards or inheritance. They, everybody is worried about, can you lose your salvation? As we pointed out in our earlier sessions, that if you can lose your salvation, I've got a new name for God. Butterfingers. Because your salvation was done by and is preserved by the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, very clearly as you study that issue. But if that's the case, what can you, if you can't lose your salvation, what can you lose? Yes, there's much you can lose. Inheritance in the Old Testament could be lost. Inheritance in the New Testament. In the Old Testament could be lost. Ask Reuben about that. Ask Esau about that. In the New Testament, ask the prodigal son. He blew his inheritance, but he never lost his sonship. Important distinction to understand. See, you are the fiduciary of an estate that you will inherit if you don't blow it. But you can blow it. That's got nothing to do with salvation. 
We're taking salvation for granted here. He that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. There is no respect of persons. He's speaking of respect in terms of rank and so forth. Everything will be brought to light at the judgment seat and in the case of the unsaved at the great white throne. There is a phrase that I want to explore a little bit by Paul, not in this letter, but in, in the, first, the last verse in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Whoa, wait a minute. You know, if you read Paul's letters, you realize he was paranoid. He lived his life under pressure. He's a type A, always driving. Only one wins the race, and so forth. And here's a, I've just selected this one of many. It says, lest I, when I preach to others, I myself might be a castaway. What is he afraid of? What is concerning Paul? That he can lose his salvation? Absolutely not. He wrote the book on eternal security. It's called Romans chapter 8. Then what is he so afraid of? That's what we want to explore here a little bit. You know, most people, including Christians, are in one of two camps. Some of them would call themselves Calvinists, and they they have a view of social uh, of uh, eternal security, persevering in the saints. Their concept of eternal security is when you get to the end, if you're saved, you, you if you are saved, you will be eternally secure. If you don't make it to the end, then well, you weren't saved in the first place. Well, that's a little, that's a little, uh, that lacks usefulness. How can you tell if you're saved? You have to wait till you get to the end. That's why theologians will call that exper uh, experimental uh, predestinarians. Are you predestinated? Well, wait till you get there and you'll find out if you were. You, you follow what I'm saying? Well, the Armenians have a different point of view. They say you, only those that persevere are saved. The Calvinist says if you don't persevere, you weren't saved. They argue about that. For 400 years, these two views prevail in the church. Most churches are either one or the other. If you come out of the, the, uh, the assemblies of some of those, you're Arminian typically. And if you're in some, most of the Reformation, thing, you're in Calvinism. Anyway, the point is, what's interesting, eternal, let's set aside those two for a minute. Eternal security is bulletproof. Jesus said if everyone that... Father gives me, he'll come to me, and, and everyone that comes to me will no wise cast out. No one can take him out of my hand. Then in the very next verse, this is John 10, verse 28, 29. My Father who gave them me is greater than all. No one can take him out of my Father's hand. There's two hands, the Son's hand, Father's. That's why I say, if you can lose your salvation, I have a new name for God, Butterfingers. And, and there's a whole study on this. If it, it bothers you, I encourage you to check that out because it's essential to understand how secure you are in Christ in order to go on to the rest of the issues. And if, uh, should not, you should not have any... Uh, we're talking about justification. That was paid for at the cross, 100%. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. If you've accepted Christ, you're nailed. Your passport is stamped, not guilty. You haven't changed yet, but you're justified. Not by anything you've done, 100% by what Christ has done. That's only the beginning of the story, though. You see, there's a third path that's overlooked by many. And that's what some people would call the overcomers. It recognizes eternal security as bulletproof. However, there's a distinction made between entering heaven and inheriting heaven. When I visit here, go to the Holiday Inn, sign in, that gives me access that allows me to enter Last time I looked, I haven't inherited the Holiday Inn chain, okay? 
If I invite you to my home, that'll invite, that gives you access to my home. Doesn't give you the right to rearrange my furniture. Okay? Now, this issue of inheritance is a big topic in the Scripture. And we need to understand more about it. And that involves the variation of rewards. Now, most of us that have studied the 70 weeks are familiar with the whole layout that Gabriel gave Daniel of that which was coming. And it's so precise, it's the most staggering passage in the entire Bible, where he tells Daniel that from the commandment restored to Jerusalem, which we know, which, which is nailed in the calendar, unto the Mashiach Nagid was 173,880 days, in effect. And the only time, the specific time, that Jesus presented himself as a king was what we celebrate as the triumphal entry that's detailed for you in Luke 19. And it turns out when you go through the study of this, the background, Gabriel's margin for error was zero. The exact day he presented, uh, Christ did that. And in fact, he held them accountable. If you read Luke 19, it's a, a shock to realize that he held them accountable for understanding that that was their day. And all that was pinned down in the Old Testament, which is translated into Greek three centuries before the Gospel period. You can check it out. And it's, the precision is one of the most uh, exciting discoveries that you'll make about your Bible. And so, anyway. But the real point is, of these 70 weeks that, that, that Gabriel outlines, 69 of those are in verse 25. There's one still left in verse 27. Between those two verses, chapter 9, the, the, is verse 26. Because it deals with the events that occur after the 69 weeks, but prior to the 70th. So we know they're not contiguous. There's a gap in there. And we need to look at it carefully and understand uh, why that's there. And that then if you understand the, the last four verses of Daniel 9, everything else in Bible prophecy will fall into place. If you're confused about that, you'll have troubles. In that interval, Jesus, the, the Messiah that presented himself king will be executed, which he was and the temple and, the, and the, uh, the sanctuary was destroyed by the Romans. So that those things took 38 years. We've experienced that this interval is a, has been the better part of 2000. But we also know from a number of reasons that it's coming to a close. Not setting dates, we don't know exactly when, but we're certainly coming to the end of it for a lot of reasons because all the events of the, that follow that are starting to get positioned. So what we, without getting into all of that, I hope that's a review for you. And, the, and I know you're a well-taught congregation, so we're just dealing with well-traveled ground here. But it's that 70th week. Don't call it the tribulation. Everybody does, but that's a misnomer. I'll explain why. The 70th week of Daniel, that last seven-year period, is the most documented period of time in the Old and New Testaments. So we'll take a look at that. After the interval, there's the so-called 70th week of Daniel, Daniel 9.27. Prior to that, there's the Harpazo. Why is it prior to that? Because that week is defined, 70th week is defined by a treaty that's enforced by a world leader who can't be revealed until after the Harpazo, according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. So the Harpazo are commonly called, the, from the Latin, it's called the rapture. And we have this, it's an interval. We don't know if that's one hour or 30 years, but there's an interval before, between the time that the Harpazo takes place, this guy's revealed, he rises to power, and he enforces the covenant which defines that week. He, defines a, he enforces a treaty, which in the middle of that seven-year period, he violates that treaty. It has a special technical name for a lot of reasons. And no, none less than Jesus Christ himself labels the last half of that seven-year period the Great Tribulation. So the Tribulation is three and a half years. Now, everybody connotatively speaks of the seven-year Tribulation. That's technically not correct. Not that it's a big deal. Just be precise if you're going to be in these things. 
It's from that abomination of desolation unto the end that Jesus labels the great tribulation in Matthew 24, 15. But the main point, both halves of that week are called three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days in the Old Testament and the New. It's the most documented, that, 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 nothing allegorical here. This is nailed to the wall. Well, we go ahead and make our charts. See that the, the tribulation gets climaxes, the battle of Armageddon, which is interrupted by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Praise God. He sets up his kingdom. He comes back twice, once for the church, once for Israel. That launches a period of time that Revelation 20 identifies as 1,000 years. And uh, there's a sheep and goat judgment and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then at the end of the 1,000 years, there's obviously not to scale here, is the great white throne, the big wrap-up. And the earth is burned up. And we have a new heavens and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem comes down and all of that, the last, which is, which is uh, uh, you see most of this on charts and you've probably, I'm sure, studied it. The question I want to raise is, this is the millennium. One of the tragedies in our world is that there's probably one Christian in ten that takes that seriously. Because most churches teach that as allegorical. They don't realize that the millennium is the fulfillment of the irrevocable covenant given David. It's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And uh, in a well-taught Bible church, that's taken for granted. But you need to realize that most denominations that come out of the Reformation have inherited an eschatology that has a tradition of ignoring or, demeaning or, call, or just treating this allegorically. When you preach the, preach the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth that is in heaven, that's what you're talking about. Most people who make, say that prayer have no idea what, the, what they're praying for. But having that said, the real question I want to focus on briefly, what goes on in heaven after the rapture? How many believe in the rapture of the church? Can I see a show of hands? Praise God. What happens next for you? On the earth, we've got all kinds of conjectures that come from the text. We think we know what's going to happen, but there's room for good callers to have some disagreements. What happens to us up there? Well, there's two major events up there. The Bema Seat of Christ. Ooh. We'll talk about that. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 